Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. It's a huge pleasure to be able to introduce this particular speaker at this festival, and to do so, I'm delighted to say that this event will be chaired and hosted by uh, a fantastic novelist whose masterpiece, The Forests, is published this week, and she'll be talking about it tomorrow. Please give a very warm welcome to your host, Emily Perkins. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Commonwealth Foundation Lecture. It is my great pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest and ambassador for Commonwealth writers, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Her best-selling novels, Purple Hibiscus and Half of a Yellow Sun, and her short story collection, The Thing Around Your Neck, have moved and enlightened readers around the globe, and her work has garnered awards and distinctions, including the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, the Orange Prize, and a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. In 2010, she was one of the New Yorker magazine's 20 best writers under 40. Her work is both lyrical, praised for its loving eye, and urgent, expanding our knowledge of the world and of the human heart. As the great writer Chinua Achebe has said, Adichie knows what is at stake and what to do about it. After the lecture, there will be time for audience questions, so do please wait for the microphone to come to you if you've got something you'd like to ask. And for now, please join me in welcoming Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Thank you so much. What a, a lovely welcome. It's so lovely to be here. And the weather, I'm so grateful for the weather today. <laughs> um, yesterday wasn't quite as, uh, but, but it's, it's lovely to be here. And I thank you all so much for coming, especially since it's nice out. And I think that other more interesting things you could be doing right now. I am really pleased to be here. And thank you, Emily, for the kind introduction. And thank you to Peter and everybody who's involved with this festival for asking me to come, and, and thank you to all the lovely people who are running the Commonwealth Writers um, programs, um, Lucy and Vijay and Emma, who are just fantastic, and I don't know if they're here, but I, I want to thoroughly embarrass them and tell them how lovely they are. So I'm going to um, give my Commonwealth lecture, um, and it's, it's, it's titled to Instruct and Delight, and it's my case for realist literature. And I would like to start by talking about bagels. When I was growing up in Osuka, the university town in southeastern Nigeria, books were the center of my world. I started reading when I was perhaps four years old. I read everything I could find. So one day I read an American novel in which a character ate something called a bagel for breakfast. I had no idea what a bagel was. But I thought it sounded very elegant, very exotic. I pronounced it bagel. <laughs> and I desperately wanted to have a bagel. My family visited the US for the first time when I was nine. And at the airport in New York, I told my mother that as a matter of the gravest urgency, we had to buy a bagel. And she went to a cafe and bought one. Finally, I would have a bagel. 
Now you can imagine my disappointment when, <laughs> when I discovered that this bagel, this glorious bagel, was only just a dense donut. But still, even though a bagel ended up not being some sort of exquisite confection, the moments in which I thought it was were well worth it because my imagination soared in delight. And there was something comforting and instructive in that discovery of a bagel, in the demystifying ordinariness of a bagel. Other people like me ate boring food. I have since, by the way, come to enjoy a toasted bagel with cream cheese. But I wanted to use this anecdote not only to illustrate the wondrous ability of books to enlarge our imaginations, but also as a starting point to make a case for the kind of literature that I was drawn to and that I continue to be drawn to as a reader and as a writer. I've been writing since I was old enough to spell. My writing, when it is going well, gives me what I like to describe as extravagant joy. And when it is not going well, is a source of great depression and anxiety. I write because I have to. I write because I love the solitude of writing. I write because I love the near mystical sense of creating characters who sometimes speak to me. I, love, I write because I love the possibility of touching another human being with my work. I write because I spend a large amount of time in the spaces between the imaginary and the concrete. Each time I read of or hear about a fellow writer's elaborate writing ritual, I'm immediately tempted to claim an equally elaborate ritual of my own, to claim that I light red candles and hold improbable yoga positions and recite an Igbo chant and fall into a brief trance before I actually begin to write. But although my ritual is significantly less colorful than I, I would like it to be, it does exist, as I imagine it does for every writer. There is an Igbo proverb that says, which translates loosely to, a sculptor always walks with a frown. This suggests that the sculptor, and by extension the artist, the writer, the creative person, walks in a state of the, of the, most, the utmost seriousness and rigor because her vocation, her calling, is not entirely in her control. She's a conduit of sorts, communing with something larger than herself, hence the frown. Now, I don't walk with a frown, at least not all the time, but I do think of my writing as both magic and craft. It is a whispering from the spirits, an inexplicable gift that I have been blessed with. But it is also a steely determination to sit down for hours and write and rewrite until the muscles of my neck and shoulders tighten in painful revolt. My family and I often joke about how when I am home and all is quiet and all distraction turned off, and I'm supposed to be writing, I am instead wandering around the house, from study to bedroom to kitchen, and then back all over again. And this brings to mind a wonderful quote from the American writer Don DeLillo. Writers go out of their way to secure their solitude. And then, having secured it, 
they go out of their way to squander it. But that wandering is itself part of the magic and craft process. And the hope is that at some point in the wandering around the house, the literary spirits will intercede, the story or character will reveal itself, and I will then be able to sink into the hours of writing and rewriting, fully inhabiting an intense and inward space. But it is too simple to claim that writing is a private act, end of story. If it were so, I would write in a diary and put it away in a drawer. So an audience, or the possibility of an audience, moves writing from a private to a public space. I have often been asked who my audience is, who I write for. And the most honest answer is that I really do not know, because I never consciously think of audience while writing fiction. Perhaps a more comprehensible answer is that I write the kind of fiction that I like to read, and so I write for whoever enjoys the kind of fiction that I enjoy. As a child, books about hobbits or flying saucers or alternative universes did not interest me. Perhaps because at some level I was always in awe of the vastness of the world, of the many places I was yet to learn about, of the millions of ordinary human stories yet untold, each one worthy, each one capable of truth and beauty. And so I was particularly drawn to books that I like to call realist literature, books populated by recognizably real human beings living in real places. Of course, one must use the word real with some reservation. The world of realist literature is not the same as the real world, but it is close enough, aligned enough to the real world to be able to illuminate it. And it is books of that sort that I would like to make a case for today. Books that have often brought to my mind the words of the ancient Latin poet Horace. The role of literature is to instruct and delight. Realist fiction is not merely the recording of the real, as it were. It is more than that. It seeks to infuse the real with meaning, which perhaps is why the artist walks with a frown. As events unfold, we do not always know what they mean, but in telling the story of what happened, meaning emerges, and we are able to make connections with emotive significance. Realist fiction is, above all, the process of turning fact into truth. I knew the basic facts of Nigerian history when I first read Chinua Achebe's novels, Things Fall Apart and Arrow of God. But it was those novels that made me realize that while I may very well know the facts, I did not really know the truths. Bloodless words like pacification and amalgamation and indirect rule were the facts. But the truths were in the human stories. A respected man being flogged publicly by agents of the colonial government. A priest once resplendent in his pride and stubbornness, now reduced to sitting on a cold prison floor because he had dared to reject an offer from a British colonial officer. And in images such as these, I learned a great truth which the history books said nothing about, the loss of dignity. 
One of my favorite novels is The Dark Child by Kamaralaye, a book of startling beauty, defiant optimism, and the most layered nostalgia. On recently rereading it, I was struck by a sentence in the introduction by the South African English writer William Plummer, which said, Laye introduces us in this book to a society which appears entirely free of vulgarity. Now, the assumption, of course, being that the society should have been vulgar. Now, this is a silly comment, if there ever was one, but if we're willing to overlook the silliness, we see that Plummer might have been knowledgeable about the so-called facts of what he calls tribal life. But he took this novel, this beautiful novel about a quiet childhood in the plains of Guinea, to make him see the truths. Most of us know the story of the philosopher Diogenes the Cynic, who, carrying a lantern in daylight, walked up and down the streets of Athens and claimed that he was looking for an honest man. Scholars now tell us that Diogenes did, did in fact carry a lantern around Athens' sunlit streets. But he did not say he was looking for an honest man. What he said was that he was looking for humanity. Of course, the cynicism of his action is clear. The lantern in daylight tells us that he does not believe he will find this humanity. But it can also be interpreted as his refusal to take the idea of humanity for granted. Because humanity is, in fact, something we must always keep searching for. To read realist literature is, I think, to search for humanity as Diogenes did, but hopefully with much less cynicism. It is easy to assume that our collective humanity is self-evident, that we do not need to search for it. But we live in a time of numbers and facts, in a world where an acceptable response to the news of death is to click the like button on Facebook. We live in a world where we can easily find information about GDP and infant mortality and life expectancy, but, but not about that which most motivates people, human desire. We live in a world where we so often quote figures of the number of the dead in Iraq and Afghanistan and Congo until they become just that, figures. Each time I read these news articles, I find myself thinking, what do they dream about in Congo? How do they fall in love in Afghanistan? How do they resolve family quarrels in Iraq? Of course, we must know about the dead and the dying. And of course, these figures and facts are essential. But they must, they should coexist with human stories. We should know how people die but we should also know how they live. When we read human stories, we become alive in bodies not our own. Literature is in many ways like faith. It's a leap of the imagination. Both reading and writing require an imaginative leap. And it is that imaginative leap that enables us to become alive in bodies that are not our own. And it seems to me that we live in a world where it has become increasingly important to try and live in bodies not our own, to embrace empathy, to constantly be reminded that we share with everybody in every part of the world a common and equal humanity. But I must hasten to clarify that I am not suggesting that we are all the same. We most certainly are not. Literature is indeed about how we are different. When I read Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited, for example, 
with the strange, interesting rituals of a particular class in England. They're different. When I read Jeanette Winterson's characters, working class, religious, I find them fascinating, but different. The American writer John Updike, after reading Chino Achebe's Arrow of God, he wrote to Chino Achebe and said that a Western writer would not have allowed the destruction of a character as rich as the protagonist, Ezulu, in Arrow of God. And perhaps what John Updike had implicitly understood was that in Achebe's world, which is very different from the Western world which Updike was familiar with, the preservation of the community mattered more than the preservation of the individual. So Achebe could kill off his protagonist, and to Updike that was incredible. Or, in the words of a character in the novel itself, an animal rubs its itching flank against a tree, but a man asks his kinsman to scratch him. This is part of realist literature's magic, that we are able to thrill to the magnificent diversity in the world. And so we read not to see how other people are like us, but simply to see them, to truly see them, what they love, what they resent, what wounds their pride, what they aspire to. Yet part of that magic of realist literature is to remind us of how similar we are in the midst of our differences, to remind us that what we all share is the quest for value. To be human is to want to be valued. The details of how we go about this may differ from culture to culture, but this is true of all of us human beings. We want our bodies to be nourished, and we want our hearts to be nourished. And this is the humanity we must seek through stories. I fell in love with Sri Lanka after I read Ramesh Ginesakara's beautiful novel, Reef, with its evocation of friendship and love and politics in a country about to be torn apart by war. Recently, I visited Sri Lanka, and at the airport in Colombo, I saw a collection box which said something like, contribute money to help the soldiers. I was not quite sure which soldiers this fundraising was for, most probably the government soldiers and not the Tamil Ilam, but it did not matter much to me because I put some money in the box anyway, and I dreamed in that small gesture of restoration, of healing, of a return to a country as it was depicted in Reef. Perhaps this was hopelessly sentimental of me, but it filled me with a small delight as did the country of Sri Lanka itself. And it was not surprising to me that I fell in love with the country and with its people, who felt strangely familiar because I had encountered them in the pages of a beloved book. Books are immensely powerful, inherently powerful, a power that often transcends the creator. I don't think that the writer of that American novel in which a character ate a bagel for breakfast knew that I would come to so lushly romanticize bagels. Nor do I think that bagels would have so completely captured my imagination if I had read of them in a newspaper article, or anywhere else really outside the pages of a novel. Ben Okri tells a story about his father who, after training as a lawyer in England, returned to Nigeria with a great collection of books, Homer, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, which he didn't quite get around to reading. The books gathered dust, and from time to time, he would tell his son, Ben, 
dust the books, but don't read them. <laughs> this, of course, made the books even more attractive to Ben Okri. And so, while dusting, he would read them. And if he heard his father's voice, he would hurriedly return to dusting. As an adult, he would recall this story and end with the words, books still have this tension for me, the do and don't, the possibility of danger, of secret knowledge. It makes them very potent. Of course, it is the contents of a book that are truly potent. In Chinua Achebe's essay, Traveling White, he writes about a librarian who, at a lecture at the University of California, told him a story that Achebe himself describes as curious. It was about a German judge. Now, this distinguished judge, the president of the highest constitutional court in Germany, had just accepted an offer to move to Namibia and become a consultant to the Namibian regime. Then, a friend gave him Chino Achebe's novel, Things Fall Apart. And after he read it, he promptly and dramatically changed his mind. He would no longer move to Namibia because he could not lend his great abilities to an apartheid system that dehumanized Africans. Now, Achebe concludes the story by wondering why a man so accomplished needed a novel to make him see. Did he not read the newspapers? But perhaps the German judge knew only the facts. And perhaps in reading Chino Achebe's novel, he was holding a lantern and taking a walk along the sunlit streets of Windhoek. Logic can convince, but it is in fact emotion that leads us to act. Realist literature reminds us of this, that we are not a collection of logical bones and flesh, that we are emotional beings, that dignity and love matter as much as bread and water. The parts of us that we can measure and define are important, but the real influence, the real basis for connection comes from the parts of us that we cannot measure and define. I am a person who deeply loves two languages, Igbo and English. I love Igbo because it is mine, because it is the language of home and laughter and love. Growing up in Nigeria, it was English that had political and economic power, but I did not love it for that reason. I loved English because I read English books. When I went to the US to go to university, I met a number of international students from Jamaica, from India, from Kenya, and I soon realized that while we were very different, we did have something in common, something that the students from China or even from Senegal did not have, a certain way of being and doing an almost intuitive way of understanding each other. And I would like to say that this was not because we came from, necessarily came from Commonwealth countries or from countries where lawyers wear funny wigs, but, but because we read English books. <laughs> and now I have, I'm missing the last page of my lecture. So I'll just add lib. Uh, so <laughs> So, well, because we, we, read, we read English books, and I, and I think that being, um, having read English books as, as young people growing up in Commonwealth countries, there's a sense in which our imaginations were bound in, in, this, in common images. All of us wondered what the heck cucumber sandwiches were and what, and what ginger beer was. And so 
<laughs> and so in reading these books, I think that we then had a, I think the last bit is coming. All right, I'll continue then. I sometimes wonder. <laughs> I sometimes wonder whether it might be a good idea to send a package of books or of realist um, literature to every prime minister and president in the world. Although, of course, the difficult part would be getting them to actually read the books. Perhaps it would make government policy take into account the parts of us that prove that we're not merely a collection of logical flesh and bones. We should read human stories to be instructed and to be delighted, but also to remind ourselves that we're not alone that we, in the words of Pablo Neruda, belong to this great mass of humanity, not to the few, but to the many. And I would like to end with some words from one of my favorite writers, Bessie Head. Bessie Head was a brilliant feminist writer from South Africa who lived most of her life in Botswana. And when she was asked the question, which writers are often asked, and which I hope nobody will ask me, um, why do you write? Her response was this, I am building a stairway to the stars. I have the authority to take the whole of mankind up there with me. That is why I write. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Um, we will be taking questions from the audience, so I think the lights might come up, but I'd just like to start by asking you about the writer's role in building that realist world and the importance of detail for the writer as a sort of um, guard against the dangers of cliché. Yeah, um, I think, well, I mean, I'm sure that this is something you also identify with, which is the, the terror of getting it wrong, um, <laughs> which I have in writing. And I think one of the things about writing realist literature, that there are writers who don't think that it's as important to, to get what I like to call the factual details right. And in some ways I respect that opinion, but I don't agree at all. I, I do think that it's important to get the factual details right, in a sense. So when I was writing Half of the Yellow Sun, for example, I knew that it would be too easy to say it's fiction, right? And it was based on something that really had happened and had really affected people's lives. And I very much wanted to get the details right. And so I spent so much time doing research and reading just incredibly boring books because I wanted to get the details right. And, and, and there's still some things that some people have written me, you know, funny emails. Well, in 1967, that couldn't have been. But I'm happy to say that I got most of them right. And I think that was important in, um, in just, I think, establishing a certain kind of... Um, in some ways, a certain kind of authority to speak about a particular thing. You need to give that thing the respect it deserves and do the work and get the details, I think. And, but always I have the terror of, of getting it wrong. Well, of course, there was a distance of time as yes. well between yeah. um, that trauma and you writing this book. And do you think that's important, that you, you know, open up the space to, to re-examine such troubled events? I think that I... Um, I think I was able to write this half of a yellow sun because I didn't experience the war. I'm not sure that I could have written it if I had. I mean, it's, you know, I, 
And so in the sense that having that distance was, um, was I was, yeah, I, I, I think it just made it possible, made it easier, I suppose. Because what I had to do then was to talk to people and try to reimagine rather than try to remember personally. And, um, and I think the distance also just creates a certain level of um, not so much that you want to be, uh, I, I was going to say fair, but I, it's not really about being fair, but it's, it's I suppose you, you see things a bit more clearly when there's been some time. So I don't know, for example, if my father, if my father had been a novelist, which he isn't, he's a professor of mathematics, which is you know, as far away as, from a novelist as you can get, but if he had been and he experienced the war, his life was deeply affected by it, I don't know that he could have written about it. Um, but and if, if he did, I think it would have been a very different book. So I do think the distance um, certainly played a role. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying about the role of the imagination mm. as being really crucial yeah. in creating a world for the reader to enter. Um, but, you know, I love the way that you spin that coin of the universal and the specific details yeah. as well. And, and in Purple Hibiscus and Tahoe Yellow Sun, the role of things, you know, food, yeah. um, spaces, rooms, those sorts yeah. of things is, is very important. Yeah. Do you collect things as you're walking around yes. the world? <laughs> <laughs> but the food part is simply because I like food. Um, so I, I make a point of writing about food. But yes, I have, um, I have I, yeah, I, I'm a collector. I'm also a, uh, um, I'm an unrepentant eavesdropper. So I will listen into strangers' conversations and I will take notes. And um, so just, you know, please Watch speak out. loudly if you're in the cafe or something. So I, can, <laughs> so I take notes and, and it's fantastic because then you sort of overhear something and, you, and then you just imagine the rest of it, of course, because you don't hear everything. And, and for me, it's often the beginning. It's, it serves as um, a catalyst of sorts for stories. I, I like to, and, and I also am known to ask inappropriate personal questions of people, just again because I'm collecting material for fiction. Wonderful. Well, I think on that note, we might open it up, but please no inappropriate personal questions. And no question, um, why do you write? I think that's been answered very well as well. So um, if you've got a question, I think there's one over there. Um, or there are microphones. Somebody's. Where are the lights up? Oh, I think there's one down here. Thank you. I wonder, she wants me to stand, right? Uh, I wonder if, when you mention uh, your uh, realist approach to literature, have you been influenced at all by the great French tradition of realistic writing? I don't think I heard that. Was it the, the um, have you been influenced by French tradition oh, French. of realism? Um, like, not very much, yeah. no. And uh, not very much, no. I, I, some of the French novels that I've read haven't been my favourite. It just seems to me that I mean I admire André Gide, for example, and and, I, and, and Marguerite Duras I admire, but a lot of French literature seems to me to spend a lot of time philosophising, and I also read real philosophy, so. I just find novels that philosophize a lot not terribly interesting. Okay. Oh, Dan here. Hello. You talked about sending books to leaders, and I wondered whether you thought the realist novel should be about reflecting um, what society is like and an understanding of that, 
or whether you felt that there should be a catalyst for change, for people to think about how things should change in life, rather than just understanding how things are? Well, I think, I think both are connected. I mean, I think that if you are a leader in a country um, which will remain unnamed, and you come from a particular class, and you have no idea how people of another class live, it might be a good thing to read books about those people in that particular class. So, <laughs> that's you know, so that when you, when you start to formulate your policy, you start to actually think about human beings rather than sort of figures and having to cut ridiculous things. You start to think about how there's a woman with a child. What is it going to mean to her child? What is it? You know that sort of thing. Hello. Um, I wondered how you felt about the role of poetry. I know you're a novelist and a realist novelist, and it's, it's lovely to have that extended feel about people's lives. But how do you feel poetry fits into that? Because I love sort of international poetry, and I like sort of reading things like that. Mm. And do, do you find that useful and, you know, how do you feel it fits into I, realism? I, I do. I... I'm, I, I admire poetry very much, and I read poetry, and I find actually that when I'm writing fiction, I'm a lot more interested in reading poetry um, than I am in reading fiction while I'm walking. And I'm, I think it's partly because I'm terrified of starting to sound like whoever I'm reading if I do read fiction. And just also because I think poetry is so beautiful and so, um, and so difficult to do well. Um, I mean, all of poets. Um, I, I love, you know, Derek Walcott is a great favorite of mine. I think he's one of the best poets who've ever lived, really. Uh, and there are many poets that I love. And, and I also find that in many ways I, I love poetry that is kind of similar to realist fiction. So, you know, poetry that, um, like Derek Walcott, and, and I love Elizabeth Bishop, um, James Merrill, uh, you know, the, the poets who, and I just love poets who are dense with their language as well. But also love poets who are very, so I, I just, I, I, yeah, I admire poetry, I suppose. <laughs> Do you ever write it? No, it's too hard. <laughs> I, I, I... <laughs> okay. Any more questions? Uh, down here. Hi. Um, do you have a favourite book or a favourite author? No, I, I love too many. Too many. Actually, it depends on my mood, um, the time of the month. Uh, so I have different. You know, it really depends. Um, I just love, there's so many books I love. I, I don't know that I have. But I do like to say that Chino Achebe is a writer whose work was most important to me because reading him I, gave me permission to write real stories, you know, stories that truly matter to me. So I, I like to call him the writer whose work is most important to me. But I, I have too many favorite books. Just to hear. There's a, there's oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I just want to find out, maybe I didn't understand at the beginning, why do you write? What is your motivation? <laughs> do you have a story to tell or something? <laughs> Thank you. I'm building a stairway to the stars. <laughs> And I have the authority to take the whole of mankind up there with me. That's why I write. <laughs> that um, does put me in mind of something that you said in response to a question about um, writing 
you know, having your writing having political content yeah. and being a political writer. And um, if I can quote you to yourself, you said, I, I don't think that all writers should have political roles, but I do think that I, as a person who writes realist fiction set in Africa, almost automatically have a political role. In a place of scarce resources, made scarcer by artificial means, life is always political. In writing about that life, you assume a political role. And I wondered if it would be a goal of yours, whether in your lifetime or mm. you know, in some, a sort of imagined future, um, that you or somebody like you would be a kind of writer who doesn't need to take that political role. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think every Nigerian writer is necessarily political. So I, and in some ways, I think it's. A, I made the choice to write realist. Um, literature. I made the choice to write about a subject like the Nigeria Biafra War, which is intensely political. Um, so I suppose, I, mean, I suppose my point is that I don't necessarily think of this as a burden. So I don't think of a future in which I am free of politics. And, and I wonder, I mean, increasingly, I think that even the act of writing is a political act. I mean, even, even if it's just uh, you're writing a... Um, I mean, because we, we, we're not, we, we don't exist in a vacuum, you know. And I think that even if you live in a country that ostensibly has resources, that politics still affects our lives. You know? and, and actually what I find in, in a lot of Western literature, when I say Western, I should probably say British and American because that's what I'm most familiar with, is that there's not, a lot of fiction just seems to be detached from from a lot of realist fiction seems to be detached from the from the political reality of people's lives. But you actually look at people's lives and they're very much affected by by politics. And it just seems to me that there's almost an idea of hiding behind art, where some writers will say, I'm an artist, I'm not going to sort of taint my hands by messing around with politics. And I feel that I don't know that we even have that choice. Do we really? I mean, we... Our lives are very much affected by, by politics, and, and it doesn't matter where one lives. I think that the, the thing about Nigeria and many countries like Nigeria is that it's a lot more, it's, it's more overt, it's more in your face. But I think it's the case everywhere, really. And um, so, yeah, but there are writers, and I completely respect them, who just, who just step away from it. Right? But I, I don't, um, I'm quite happy to, to get my, my hands dirty in, in yeah, politics. That's great. Uh, any other questions down here? Hi, uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, last year you were um, chosen um, one of the World Book Night books, um, and I was lucky enough to give away um, Half a Yellow Sun uh, to, I think, 49 people. And I just wondered if you could say something about how you felt about being chosen at that time um, uh, in, in that list of 25 books. Uh, and all 49 accepted the book? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody threw it back in your face? <laughs> Yet read them. Uh, I, um, I, I'm a GP, and I, my, I wanted to give them to a group of uh, junior doctors to try and get them reading, uh, mm. because they're so ground down by their work. Yes, <laughs> that's lovely. <laughs> I, I, I know. I thought it was lovely. I thought the whole idea. I mean, not just being included. I just really thought it was such a lovely idea. Um, you know, giving out books and, and just the whole idea. I, I thought was quite lovely. And so when I was asked if I was happy to have my book included, I was, I was very happy to have it included. And you know, I've had stories about people who um, gave the book out just in the most unlikely places and the most unlikely settings. And it's, um, I find it 
very interesting, sometimes amusing, and, and I also hope that, that some of the people actually read the book. Uh, <laughs> that's the... Hi, uh, thank you. Um, in your writing, you blend um, quite happily English and uh, Igbo languages. I wonder if you could speak a bit about that and how that works within your realist writing and thoughts on realism? Mm. I, I write about mostly middle-class Nigerians and the reality of, of middle-class Nigerian life is that English is often the... Because English is the language of education in Nigeria. So middle-class Nigerians who are educated speak English, often think in English, but also because they have their own languages, we, we constantly are negotiating two or three languages. So I grew up speaking both, often at the same time, sometimes in the same sentence, and I very much wanted to capture that in my fiction. And, and of course I have to be, you know, there's a sort of a level of when I'm editing, I have to be in some ways circumspect about um, putting in enough of Igbo to give the flavor, but not to entirely confuse somebody who's not an Igbo speaker. Right? But I did very much want to, to capture that reality because it is how, you know, that's how people, that's how people live their lives. We're constantly negotiating two languages. And, and also for me, actually, there are times when I think about something happens and it's English doesn't just capture it. And, and, and I just feel like only an Igbo word will do it right. And um, one of my favorite words is Nkali which um, I don't know if there are any Igbo speakers here. Uh, this being England, there just might be some English Igbo speakers. In America, I would never imagine that there would be an Igbo speaker, but um, okay. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and, and Nkali, it's so difficult to translate. Um, it, you translate it loosely and it just sounds very bland. It just means to be greater than somebody, right? But it, but it has layers. And sometimes I want to talk about something and only Nkali just, you know, Nkali is the only word that captures it. And so if I were writing fiction, I would use Nkali, but they'd have to find subtle ways to sort of explain it to a non-Ibu um, speaker. But yes, I mean, of course, I have had people email me to say, you know, I'm so confused. You didn't, you know, you don't have a glossary at the end. And I just think, yeah, like, I don't like to do glossaries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think that's probably a political choice too, isn't yes, it? To not it do is. a glossary. <laughs> but also, I mean, I grew up reading books in which um, characters often spoke. I mean, so in, in Saul Bellow, for example, he has reams of French in, in um, I think it's Herzog, one of his novels, and nobody translates it. And of course, the assumption is we all sort of should know mm -hmm. French. Yeah. Right? But, you know, we don't all know French. <laughs> and it's there. And, and I read Indian books in which, you know, there would be um, Hindi or something in the book. And, and uh, books set in France, written in English, which would have bits of French. And, and I was fine with it. I didn't entirely understand everything. But it just gives, I think it gives a, a lovely flavor sometimes mm -hmm. to, to, yeah. Thanks. Uh, if you have a view, please, about... To what extent William Shakespeare was a realistic writer? <laughs> huh, how much time do we have? Um, uh, was he? Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I think by the standards with which I consider more contemporary books to be realist, I would say no. Um, but for his time, I suppose to an extent he was. <laughs> yeah, I think I better stop there. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay, thanks. We might have to set up another session for that <laughs> later on. Is uh, lady down there? Is my... Thank you. Um, thank you very much for the lecture. And I'd like to say that I absolutely love your work. And I have two questions about purple, one question about purple hibiscus and about half a yellow sun. Um, purple hibiscus has always struck me as, uh, I guess because the, the action in the story is focused on one particular family and it's not set against the backdrop of this vast sort of national conflict as half a yellow sun is. And I was wondering if as a result of that, you felt a different kind of connection to the characters in each book as you were writing it, just because mm. when I was reading it, the experience seemed so different, although I love mm. both of them, but they're, mm. they're obviously quite different, yeah. different stories. Yeah. I wrote them, I think also in some ways, the, the person, I was two different people, uh, you know, not to sound silly, but really the person who wrote Purple Hibiscus is very different from the person who wrote Half of a Yellow Sun. I was in a different mind space. I was in a, just entirely different. Purple Hibiscus, I, wrote because I was just incredibly nostalgic for home. I was homesick, I was in the US, I hadn't been home in four years, and it was very cold in, in the middle of a Connecticut winter, and I just, you know, I was so homesick, and I started to write this book, and, and it's, it's a very nostalgic, in some ways, romanticized book, and I didn't do much research, because I was writing about where I grew up, I was writing about Catholicism, which I know very much about, because I grew up Catholic, and, and it was very, and I think in some ways very focused. Half of Yellowstone was so different. I had done so much research, and I, I was really struggling to turn all the facts into truth and to decide what to leave out. And, and I think what I learned in the process was that to write a book set in a time like that is really about making choices about what to leave out. And, and it was very difficult for me, and I went through many drafts and many revisions, and... Um, and the characters, and in some ways I think that Half of the Yellow Sun is, I feel, I mean in some ways it's like asking you, you have two children, who do you prefer? And actually you prefer one, but you have to pretend that you don't, right? So I am um, going to pretend, but I am mean, going to say that Half of the Yellow Sun is very important to me because it, you know, in writing it I would stop to, you know, I'm also known to be stupidly emotional, so I would stop and just cry thinking about I would write about a refugee camp and I would think, you know, my grandfather died in something like, you know, and, and try to imagine what it must have been like for him, this proud, titled Igbo man who's reduced to a refugee camp. And yeah, so it, it, quite, a, quite an emotional experience for me. And I think because of that, the characters mean something different than the characters of Purple Hibiscus. In Half of the Yellow Sun, they are, they, I don't know, in some ways they're, they're invested with a, a greater, um, uh, moral power, <laughs> if that makes sense. But I love my two children equally. <laughs> I wonder what you... I, a friend of mine emailed me just this week and said, I'm in Nigeria working on a film of that amazing novel, Half uh, of a Yellow uh, Sun. So are you having anything to do with the, the film production? No, no, I chose not to because... Oh. Um, <laughs> All my friends who've had their, their books made into films said, don't get involved, nobody will listen to you. <laughs> so I, <laughs> and in some ways, I think also I was, I was telling um, the producer that I also didn't want to be involved because I think I would just have numerous heart attacks. You know, the, I mean, films are such different things, and just thinking about what they would take out. And then, of course, I'm thinking, you know, you can't do that, that's my baby, no. And, and so I'm quite happy that I'm not involved because I hear that it's... It, it's a film, it's different from the book. The focus is different. And I think if I'd been involved, I would just 
tearing my hair out, mm. thinking, no, you can't take that out. No, you can't do that. But I'm also quite happy because um, the director is somebody who I deeply respect and, and admire. So I'm looking forward to the film, but I'm, I'm sort of... Yeah. I'm sure we'll it. all look forward to it too. Um, another question down here. Actually, the, the question I wanted to ask is uh, what the moderator just took. I was going to ask a purely journalistic question. That half of your lesson is being shot into film in Nigeria. And I was wondering what uh, input you have in there and what influence you are likely to have. Because um, I think last week, uh, Salman Rochdi was here and they were talking about Midnight Children, and he's so much involved with Dipamita, the, the director, that I began to be apprehensive. I mean, the, the kind of influence a writer could have when you're on set <laughs> with the film. I, I mean, he was very much involved, and he was really even in charge of the film, so to say. And I'm wondering what the film will look like when it comes out in November. You don't sound very hopeful. <laughs> No, I, I, yeah, I, I think, I mean, but I, but I also think that people have different interests, and I think that um, writers who, who, uh, who have a, a kind of theatrical sort of interest or bent, I can see how they would want to be involved, but, but I don't. I, I don't write screenplays. I'm not, I'm really just not interested, and... Um, yeah, so I, I think it's, actually, I think I, I made the right decision. I am happy, though, that it's being filmed in Nigeria, and really the only input that I had was just to say to them that I really want them to use um, some Nigerian talent uh, in the film and, and that was all but I didn't have a say in who's going to be cast and, and also I think that when it's a film like that that um, it's not sort of the sort of film that um, you know Angelina Jolie is going to star in right yes. so, so it's difficult to get funding as well and so they had quite a hard time getting money together so it's not as though it's one of those big budget films where you can lay down rules and um, so I think in some ways that the producers are grateful that they got the money together. And I should say that most of the money they actually got from Nigeria, which also made me proud. Um, so, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think if I was involved, it would be a terrible film, actually. Because I would want every bloody scene in the book to go in the film. Because, because I would think about how much time I had put into writing those scenes. I'd be like, you can't take that out. What do you mean? And so I think it's a good thing. I think it, the film is better off my, my non-involvement. Thank you. We have another question down here. Hi. I was just wondering whether your books are actually published in Ebo and what sort of readership you do have at home in Nigeria. Oh, I have a huge readership in Nigeria. It's, it's, it's in English, though, because English is what Nigerians read. Um, and I think the, the, the question of language is one that interests me, actually, but, but also it's um, one that I, I sometimes think isn't... So people will say, oh, African writers should write in African languages. And I think really the, the conversation should be about the systems of education in African countries. Nigeria, English is the language of education, only English. I mean, when I was growing up in primary school, you were not allowed to speak what was called the vernacular. You got into trouble for speaking Igbo, your own language, in school. And so, you know, you would have a, somebody say, I'm going to report to teacher that you spoke the vernacular. Which really, when you think about it now, is just completely absurd. But that's what our reality was. And so you have many educated Nigerians, and I can speak with authority about Igbo people because that's what I know best. But I think this is true for, for most of Nigeria, who are educated and who cannot read Igbo and who can barely write it. 
And so the idea of him translating a book into Igbo, which is something I would like to do, actually, but in many ways I would like to do it simply as a labor of love, not because I'm going to have much of a readership, because Igbo people, and many Igbo people have read my work, but they read it in English, because that's what they read. Um, Yeah, thank you, Chimamanda. I really enjoy all your lectures, so I play them again and again and again and again and again, so that I can begin to sound like you. <laughs> now, really, uh, my question is, because as a realist writer, uh, do you see yourself you know, gravitating towards you know, uh, activism? Um, what I mean is taking part in what you so passionately believe. For instance, um, what's his name now? The poet, Christopher Okigo, actually took up arms during the Civil War. Uh, do you see yourself going that way, if at all? <laughs> taking up arms, no. Well, no, not taking up arms. I mean, uh, being in the forefront of what you believe in, what you write but about, think... you want to make a change. But I, I do think that, um, well, first of all, I'm not, I'm not brave like Okibo. So I would, and also, I just, I'm a, I completely loathe violence of any sort. Um, so I, but... But I do think that every society, I think societies need their storytellers as much as they need their soldiers. And I think that I'm already doing what I believe, which is, this is what I can do. I, I happen to be fortunate to have this strange gift where I can tell stories. And, and, that's, and I think that's what, so in some ways, I'm doing what I can. I don't know that, there are times, I should confess, that I've thought about, um, you know, I go back to my hometown. And my, home, my hometown is Nanambra State, which has a very interesting uh, contemporary history in Nigeria. We've had you know, just the most ridiculous things happen there. And there are times when I go back to my hometown and I'm driving through Oka and I just think, I should run for governor. You know, I can fix all this. It can't be that hard. You know? and, and you know, I hear stories about what goes on there. I'm like, this is, you know, we should stop this. I'm going to join, you know, start a party because I can't join any of the existing parties. They're all terrible. And I'm going to run for governor and I'm going to fix my state. But then I sit back and I think, it, it's too easy to say. It's so much more complicated. And, and also I think that there are people who can do it much better than I can. I mean, I think that there are brilliant Nigerians who, who if only they will get involved in politics, will do very well. And will actually, Anambra State can be cleaned up, as can Nigeria. I mean, I think in some ways I'm a key admirer of, of Governor Fashola in Lagos, and I think that he shows what, what is possible, right? He's not perfect, but still. And um, so, no, I don't. I don't imagine that I will be taking up arms or that I will be running um, for office, but I also believe in never say never. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, I think you've also made a really wonderful case for the way that <laughs> fiction you know, is a powerful influence in the world. We've got time for one more question. And, oh no, we're running out of time. I'm terribly sorry. Oh, we do, we do have one. Um, I just wanted to say hi, your lecture was amazing, and um, reading both of your books, especially Half of Yellow Sun, completely opened me up to things I knew nothing about, and it really affected me in a huge way, um, especially my friend Rachel here as well. Um, and I just wanted to ask you if you've read anything by a particular writer or you've read a particular book that's maybe opened you up to things you knew nothing about. Um, and also, the second part of my question was to ask you if you're working on anything else at the moment. Thank you. Um, I'm a superstitious Igbo woman, so to talk about something in progress, I just think the minute you talk about it, it will just go bad. So I am supposed to be working on a novel. <laughs> 
And um, yes, I've read, oh, books, so many books. Have, I mean, I, uh, yeah. Um, see, the minute I'm asked about books, I just go blank. It happens oh, I, to all writers. Yes, it's, yes, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. it's as though you I never read, read this, anything. I read this fantastic book about Estonia. Um, yes, Sophie Oxenen. And what was the book called? It's this fun, really beautiful, which I highly recommend. Ah, and it's called... Um, but anyway, it, opened my, it completely opened my eyes to, to Estonia's um, recent history and, and contemporary Estonia and just really beautiful, you know, wonderful characters, but also just the, the, the way that you learn. In some ways, you're, you're being delighted, but also being instructed by it. So that book, but if you, if you just look up Oksanen, that's her name, you, you'll find the book. So that book was very important. I, I read it not long ago. And recently also read... Um, I recently reread Shiba Chinodia's novel about Zimbabwe, which is called Harvest of Thorns, which I just really, really love because it was one of the rare, I think one of the rare books that looks at that period in Zimbabwean history from the black perspective. And I'd read quite a bit about sort of the Rhodesia, but it was really interesting for me and eye-opening to read Shiba Chinodia's book. And there, there's so many others. I think for me, really, I, I think that most of my education has come from, from reading literature. And I did well in school, I should say. <laughs> but, um, but you know, school mostly bored me. I mean, I did really well, but I was bored by sort of the more formal structures of education. I think that most of what I know, I, I learned from just reading everything I could find and, and realizing that the world is this vast, vast place. And, and it was through books. Thank you. And um, if anybody else has got questions, uh, Chimamanda will be signing books in the book tent after this event. But for now, it just remains to thank you so much for thank you, instructing Emily. us, thank delighting you. us. It's wonderful. Thank you.